You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll be in verses 5 through 8 that Miss Robin just read for us. Uh, as you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. If you're new, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. Honored that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning. If you're watching online, whether it's your first time to do that or you've been doing that for a long time, welcome. We're honored. Uh, we are starting a brand new series this morning uh, on wisdom called Wisdom and Wonder. And I'll explain a little bit of that in a bit. But uh, if it's anything like the series that we've been in in the past, we'll be in it for about a year. And, oh, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> uh, we'll be in it for probably about a year. Um, and this morning, here's what I want to do. I just want to set I just want to set the series up by answering three questions. So if you like structure and you like a, an outline, then, then you're going to like this. The three questions I want to answer is why wisdom, what is wisdom, and how do we become wise? Why wisdom, what is wisdom, and how do we become wise? There's quite a bit to cover today, so I'm just going to jump right in. When I say why wisdom, what I mean is why is this our series right now? Why are we looking at the, uh, at the, at the, at the truth of wisdom and, and considering that? And there's two answers to that. One is general and one's really specific. The general answer is that it's in the Bible. Wisdom is all over the Bible. At Citizens Church, we are Bible people. One of our values is the Word of God. We believe the Bible tells the true story about who God is and who we are. And so we, we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible and studying books of the Bible and also committed to, to turning our attention to what God turns His attention to in the Word. And one of the things that God turns His attention to is this idea of wisdom and this invitation to become wise. And so there are three, some think four, Old Testament books entirely devoted to making us wise. Job, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and some think Song of Solomon. Wisdom is a, a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. Wisdom is a, a, a major theme in James's letter in the New Testament. And so if we're just asking what's something that God has committed a lot of ink to in his word, one of the answers is wisdom. And so we, we, want, to, we want to know what God wants us to know, and we want to uh, study what God wants us to study. And so mostly what that will mean is our, our primary book in this series will be the book of Proverbs, but we'll also go outside of that to, to consider the counsel of wisdom that the Bible has to offer. That's the general answer. Here's a more specific answer that's tied to why wisdom right now. And it's because I think that the need in the specific moment we find ourselves in culturally, the need is wisdom. There is a, a cultural moment that we live in that's filled with confusion, and the antidote to that kind of confused foolishness is wisdom. Every year, Oxford English Dictionaries comes out with a word of the year, and it's selected by a collection of their editorial staff from several different countries. So the editorial staff from the U.S. gets together with that from the U.K., and they basically just come together and ask this, what is a word or what's a phrase that has garnered the most interest in that year? So if we're just thinking about searches and we're thinking about kind of the cultural conversation, right? What, what is something that got a lot of attention? What's something that captured a, a lot of what people thought about in the year? And, and in a way, the word of the year is kind of a summary. It's a condensed a picture into what was going on in the world at that time. Not just where the world was, but even where the world was going. And so they've been doing this for, for, for several decades. Can you guess 
1999 what the word of the year was? Y2K. Remember that? The word of the year in 2001 was 9-11. In 2012, the word of the year was GIF. Or is it GIF? Is it GIF? See, we hadn't even figured it out yet. (laughs) In 2020, I love this. I really respected this. In 2020, instead of choosing a word, they released a statement. (laughs) And they said for the year 2020, they would not choose one word of the year because, and I quote, it was a year which cannot be neatly accommodated in one single word. And all God's people said, amen. I bring that up because I want to tell you about the word of the year from 2016, so six years ago. And I think that that word helps explain, at least to me, so much of why we are where we are as a society and a culture, and why there's a desperate need for wisdom right now. The word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. Here's how it's defined. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Post-truth. What captured the minds, the thoughts, the conversations of the year six years ago was a question around truth. Namely, are we past it? We're we're a, a people who are not shaped by absolutes as much as we are shaped by appeals to emotions and passions. And that truth crisis was further validated in 2017 when on the cover of Time magazine, instead of having a picture like they usually do, they just had a three-word question on the cover, is truth dead? Now, that question was posed in response to a specific political moment, but the cover was intentionally modeled after the cover of the magazine from 50 years before. I want to show it to you. So on the right, that's 2016, is truth dead? 2017, rather. On the left, that's 1966. It's the first time Time Magazine ever did this as the cover of their magazine, where it's just word, is God dead? Now, the magazine was responding, again, to specific things happening in culture, but here's what what the magazine knew. They know that those two questions are inextricably linked. And so they're asking 50 years ago, is God dead? And the question on the cover is that. And then, you know, 51 years later, the question mark that was around the idea of God is now around the idea of truth itself. And I bring all of that up simply to say this, friends. We are living in a moment of deep confusion about reality. Deep confusion. What is truth? Where can truth be found? Are there any truths that are true for everyone? Does it even exist? And with that deep confusion is also a deep confusion around morality and a deep confusion around identity and a deep confusion around purpose. And in response to that confusion, because it's so destabilized in so many ways, in response to that confusion, there is a clamor, a clamor of voices vying for our ears wanting to, to bring clarity to that confusion, wanting to tell us how we should or shouldn't live. I, I came across the Oxford story in the Time Magazine article. They were both in the introduction of a book that a guy uh, wrote, a guy by the name of Brett McCracken, strong last name. His book is called The Wisdom Pyramid, and it's really great. You should read it. But he sums up that confusion and where we are in a way that I found was just so poignant, and I want to read it. It's long, but I want to read it. He says this, Our world has more and more information, but less and less wisdom. 
More data, less clarity, more stimulation, less synthesis, more distraction, less stillness, more pontificating, less pondering, more opinion, less research, more speaking, less listening, more to look at, less to see, more amusement, less joy. There is more, but we are less, and we all feel it. Our ears are bleeding from the screeching multitudes who daily assault our senses. Everyone has a megaphone, but no one has a filter. Our eyes are strained, brains overstimulated, souls weary. We're living in an epistemological crisis. It's hard to know if anything can be reliably known. We're resigned to a new normal where the choice seems to be trust everything or trust nothing. Or maybe the choice is trust nothing or trust only in yourself. A seemingly logical strategy, but one that sadly only inflames our epistemological sickness. How can one flourish in a world like this? How can one fortify one's own immunity and be healthy amidst the contagion of foolishness whose spread shows no sign of stopping? What a scathing critique of our moment. And when I read that, it reminded me of an example in the Bible of a post-God, post-truth culture. It's found in the book of Judges. In that world then, that culture then, it was a time filled with chaos and heartbreak, and it was a complete failure of flourishing for the people of God. And their post-truth belief, their post-God belief in a lot of ways was summarized in a refrain that you hear throughout the book of Judges. And here's the refrain, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was a recipe for becoming fools who ruined their lives and the lives of everyone around them. And is it not in many ways happening now? Does the refrain not fit, at least in part, Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And the, the question that I hope to answer is the question the author asked in the quote, how can we flourish in a world like that? And the answer is by pursuing wisdom, by seeking God's wisdom. And that's not because, cards on the table, that's not because I believe that a room full of Christians, which is, I'm assuming, predominantly what this is, it's not that I'm assuming that this room is post-God or even post-truth. I think that part of you being here is, is because you believe that neither God nor truth has died. But I've found as a pastor and I've found just as a human that we in this moment, we're not immune to the confusion. We're not. We want to live life that honors God, and it can be hard to know where to go for answers in a world like this. And in a climate like that, right, the difficult, the complex things in life, and, and while we're trying to figure that out, our ears are not immune to the screeching multitudes who have megaphones with no filter. And among all of that noise, my fear for us is that God's voice has gotten lost or it could potentially get lost, that we would wrongly believe that he is silent in a world like that when what Proverbs is going to say is that wisdom calls out in the streets. It calls out to you and to me, inviting us to live according to a different kind of reality. We have a Google Home at our house. We got it around Thanksgiving. And uh, quickly, our kids learned that you could ask Google questions and Google would answer. So here's a list of, of questions that they've asked Google. Hey, Google, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? Hey, Google, how do you spell business? Hey, Google, how much is a horse? <laughs> hey, Google, what was the score of the Cowboys game? It hurts. It still hurts. Every Wednesday night at 6.30, we have something called recovery, and <laughs> I commend it to all of us. Um, or they'll, they'll give commands, hey, Google, set a timer. Or, hey, Google, play I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston, which is, I'm proud of that moment. 
Um, every now and then they'll ask Google questions that they're not, it's not designed to answer, like, um, hey, Google, how tall am I, you know? But then sometimes, and where I've grown most uncomfortable, is sometimes they ask questions of Google when that's not the place to go for answers. It's it, especially not the place I'm wanting them to go for answers. So one time after a fight between my two oldest kids, my daughter went into the kitchen and she literally crawled up on the counter where the Google home is and she said, hey, Google, how do I get along with my brother? And it was sweet. It was sweet. And it was quiet. And then it said, I'm not sure, but I found this on the internet. <laughs> and I said, Google, off, to return. And I told her, I looked at her and I said, hey, I, um, I would love to talk about that question with you. Like, I would love to, even more than that, I would love to show you what God would have to say if you asked him. And friends, in, in a world like ours that is oversaturated with information and opinion, that's in the middle of an epistemological crisis that is reeling in many ways from the supposed death of truth, it is becoming increasingly more damaging when Christians take their questions where it's not the place to go for answers. And, it won't, and, and I don't necessarily think that we're actively asking those questions as much as I think we're being shaped by the answers that already surround us. And maybe we don't even know that God cares. Maybe we don't even know what God's already said. And if I were to put it into a scene, into our scene, it would be like this. Hey, world, what should I believe about love? Hey, world, what should I believe about what's wrong with my marriage? What should I believe about being a single person? Hey, world, how should I handle conflict? Hey, world, what should I believe about sex? What should I believe about identity? What makes me me? Hey, world, how should I spend my free time? Hey, world, what should I do about my emotions? How should I handle my anger? How should I handle money? How should I parent these kids? Hey, world, what should I do about suffering and pain? Hey, world, who should I hate? How should I treat my enemies? Hey, world, what, what makes life matter? What's the point of all this? And my fear is that we are asking those questions to a hyper-individual, post-truth world that is largely going to tell you to look inside for those answers, which is another way of saying do what's right in your own eyes, and that's what fools do. That's what fools do. That's how you make a mess of things. We believe, friends, that there is a God and that God designed this world. Not only that, but He's given His Word to us to guide us that we might flourish in His world, even if there's things about the world that are really painful and really broken. And so why wisdom? Why wisdom right now? Because my hope is that we would pursue the answers God's already given us, that we would pursue wisdom in a way to, as a way so that we don't get caught up in the confusion of the world. And, and instead of living lives that say, hey, world, we would live a life that says, Lord God, make me wise. Make me wise, God. And I believe that Scripture is sufficient to guide us. And one of my just kind of quiet hopes is that we would consider God's wisdom in a way that we would be reminded or even recover a confidence in God's voice, that His voice is true, His and His alone is perfectly wise. That's why wisdom. What is wisdom? I want to offer a simple definition that, that we'll use throughout the series. If you did our Proverbs class last year, you'll, this should be familiar. Wisdom is the ability to live in God's world in God's way. Wisdom is living in God's world in God's way. Let me give a minute to unpack that. Around the time that Proverbs was written, you had several other cultures and religions that had their own creation stories. They had their own beliefs about how the world came to be. So a famous one that maybe you read in school somewhere was the Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish. 
And what they all had in common, what all of these other competing stories had in common, is they all taught that the world was created out of chaos, and it came to be out of some sort of cosmic conflict. So gods fought one another, and then the world came out of that conflict, or some celestial being warred against another one, and the victor used the loser's body to make the world, is, is the idea. And into that landscape, the Bible tells a very different story. It tells the story of a Trinitarian God of love who, out of love, created and ordered a beautiful world. Not out of war and destruction, but out of love and design. And Proverbs is going to add something to that. Proverbs is going to tell us, this is brand new for me. It's just a few years old in terms of my thinking. Proverbs says that there's something, as God is ordering and designing that beautiful ordered world, there is something that he uses, there's a tool that he uses to do that. Proverbs 3.19 says this, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. Proverbs 8, this is the passage you heard in our, in our intro video. This is wisdom speaking. It's wisdom personified as a woman, lady wisdom. And it says this in verse 22, The Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Verse 27 says this, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. For whoever finds me finds life, verse 35 says. 36, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate wisdom love death. So there's a point that if you had said, hey, Jamin, what is wisdom? I would have said, well, you know, wisdom's the ability to, like, make a, a good decision whenever you're faced with, like, a complicated choice or something like that. And that's true. There's a lot of truth to that. But Proverbs has just told us that it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more than that. It, it presents wisdom as somehow as God's creating the world. Wisdom is embedded in his very creation as this ordering force by which creation somehow holds together, which means you can find wisdom all throughout God's creation. So one of the most well-respected and consulted theologians on Proverbs is a British scholar named Derek Kidner, and here's what he says. Wisdom leaves its signature on anything well-made or well-judged, from an apt remark to the universe itself, from a shrewd policy which springs from practical insight to noble action, which presupposes moral and spiritual discernment. In other words, it is equally at home in the realms of nature and art, of ethics and politics, to mention no others, and forms a single basis of judgment for them all. And as another commentator was trying to describe this concept of wisdom leaving its signature all over God's creation, they used an illustration that we've leveraged to just try to make this clear. They talked about God in creation as a seamstress. And wisdom is the thread that God is creator. Wisdom's the thread that he sewed throughout his world to make it run to make it all tie together, to make it work. Wisdom is this ordering force that God sows into his world. And as Proverbs 8 says, whoever finds me, whoever finds the thread, sees it sown through God's word, finds life, 
So if you looked around this morning, if you, if you paid attention as you walked into the building, or if you're even paying attention now, what you'll see is we've tried to put that concept on display in our sermon design, not to be trendy or relevant or anything like that, but just to reinforce a point that can be hard or foreign for many of us. And it's the idea that wisdom is this ordering force that's thread through God's world. And when we're seeking wisdom, we're not just seeking to get specific answers for a specific circumstance of our life. When we're seeking wisdom, what we're actually doing is we're trying to align our life with a way that God has ordered his world to work. We're trying to find the thread. I know that that that's a bit maybe top shelf. So the simple definition of that that we're offering is it's living in God's world in God's way. Living in God's world as a way that that accords with what he's done and how he's created. And I think what's so appealing about wisdom is it's not simply about what's right or wrong. It's almost a higher form of living than that, right? Keller says, Tim Keller says, wisdom is having a character of mind and heart so that you do the right thing even when the rules don't apply. A character of mind and heart so you do the right thing even when the rules don't apply. In other words, I'm, I believe there's a way through this Whatever the particular challenge is, I believe there's a way through it that's not simply right or wrong, but there's a way through that's wise, and that means it's best. Okay, I asked several friends a question this week, and I want to share their answers with you. Here's the question I asked. If you could spend an hour with the wisest person alive, how would you use that time? Somebody who's truly wise, known for being wise, and you could spend an hour with them, what questions would you ask? What would you expect from them, right? What would you do? Here are some of the answers. They said, um, I would ask the wise person, how do I let my children fail in a way that helps them grow but doesn't hurt them? How do we as Christians live faithfully in this political climate? One friend said, I would want to hear them talk about their friendships. What are their friends like? How do you cultivate deep friendships? One responded and said, I would ask, how do you switch from regular to decaf? (laughs) I'm not wise, but I can answer that. The answer is you don't. You just, (laughs) you receive the blessing and and deal with the jitters. Um, Several said something to the effect of, I would just, I would want to hear them talk about their failures. Like, wise person, take me, take me to a moment where you failed and, and how did that shape you and how did you respond to that, right? Another said, I would ask, what would you tell someone whose mind always says it's never enough? Another said, how do I love my divorced parents and work towards a way where we can all be together? One of my friends asked her husband, and she shared his answer with me, and he said, she said, she shared, he would make a list of all the topics he cared most about, marriage, parenting, family, work, health, and then ask the wise person who is the next wisest in each of those areas so that they have access to them for their advice once his hour was up. And the wife's comment about his answer was kind of like asking the genie for more wishes, also known as cheating. Um, One response was, how do I show love, care, acceptance to people without approving of sin in their life? I would ask the wise person, what is rest and how do you do it? Uh, I would ask, what do people think is really important in life that is actually of little importance? What's the most important thing to do in a marriage? How have you seen God satisfy the longings of your heart when you have wanted something pure, right, and good and have never gotten it? What would you, how would you use the hour? What would you want to hear? What question 
or concern or complexity would you want the wise to help you wade through? And if you think about it, that's a different conversation than you have with someone who is super wealthy. If you get an hour with the wealthiest person alive, you use that time differently. It's different than the conversation you have with somebody who's super famous. You get an hour with the most famous person alive. You probably, the best you could probably hope for is like a picture with them at the end of it, right? But what we're looking for from a wise person is something that's altogether different than that, right? You're, you're looking for a guide. You're looking for a sage, right? And it's not simply looking for the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do, but what's the wise thing to do? And so in all of that, what it presupposes is it presupposes that there's a way to parent, and there's a way to be a friend, and there's a way to suffer, and there's a way to fail, and there's a way to love divorced parents, and there's a way to care for sinful people, and there's a way to do all of that that's best, that leads to flourishing. It's the wise way, and we're looking for it. And if I could add anything to our understanding, it would be this. We are not after simply applying wisdom to our moment or our circumstance. It's bigger than that. We're actually after aligning our lives to a way of living, a way of being in the world that was first ordered and established by God in his creation. Like in each of those questions, how do I love these parents? How do I love these people? What do friendships look like? What we're really asking is, would you help me find the thread Would you help me find whatever it was that God sowed into his world so that I can see God's wisdom and I can live by it and live well? So wisdom is. What is wisdom? It's living in God's world, in God's way, believing there is a way, a a, a best way, a wise way to live in his world. And so to a confused world, a post-truth world, where it would be easy to seek answers in places that don't exist, God's word reminds us there is an age-old ordering force that guides his creation and his people. And what it means to follow God, what it means to be a Christian, is to sign up to learn that way, to want to be wise. All right, how does that happen? How do we become wise? Well, it's going to take us an entire series to answer that question, but I do want to offer just three truths about that that we're going to need that I hope we come back to over and again throughout the weeks. I want to talk about wisdom's posture, wisdom's pace, and wisdom personified. And I just want to tease each of those, a few minutes on each of those, because we're going to come back to them over and over and over again. But we need to at least start that work now. Wisdom's posture. Finally, look at Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When it comes to the book of Proverbs, most people are familiar with the proverbial sayings that you'll find in Proverbs, right? Like a great one is Proverbs 12, 19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And and I love those. I'm, I'm so excited to dig into more of those. But you don't get those until chapter 10 of the book. You'll remember that if you did the Proverbs class. Uh, the first nine chapters of the book, one, chapters 1 through 9, they're all about something different. Before they, they dig into the proverbial sayings, they lay out over nine chapters an invitation to wisdom. And they say that there's a, it presents it as this wise father and then presents it as lady wisdom. And they're inviting you to answer the call of wisdom. But that's not the only voice. There's also folly inviting you to be foolish. And, and a voice of foolishness cries out. And so really, so much of what the setup for the book is, the first nine chapters is, who are you going to listen to? 
What decision are you going to make? Wisdom says, follow me. Folly says, follow me. And, and, and what are we going to do? And, and that's not just a proverb story. That is the story of the Bible. In Genesis 1 through 3, you had God's voice calling out, follow him. Then you had the voice of the enemy saying, do what's wise in your own eyes. But what you see about wisdom is that invitation, if you're going to respond to it, the very first step you take is you assume wisdom's posture. There is a posture you and I have to exist in if we have any hope of actually becoming wise. And here's how that posture is described. Trust in the Lord. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. The first camping trip I ever took, my dad and my brother and some friends went canoeing in Colorado down a river. And the way it worked is we would canoe all day and then we'd camp by the river at night, set up tents and stuff. And I was in junior high at the time. And this isn't the point, but that's when I realized something about me that I loved being outdoors during the day. But when it's time to sleep, I just want to be inside somewhere. Like, I just want a mattress, you know, nothing crazy, just like a king-size memory foam and some blackout curtains and <laughs> the temperature at 70 degrees all night. Right, that's common grace from God, and I don't want to reject his common grace. So uh, we were in Colorado, and one day we set up camp, and we went hiking into the, into the mountains. And uh, my dad's friend uh, got my attention. He took me to a place where there was a natural spring running in the ground. And there was a certain part where that spring running in the ground ran over a, a rock and, and kind of trickled off the rock, and it was a little mini waterfall. And he pointed at that, and he said, that is the best water you will ever drink. And I said, okay. So I kind of bent down and reached my hands in to try to cup it, but that, I didn't have a bottle or anything like that, but that didn't work. It just slipped through my hands. And he said, no, 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 let me show you. And he gets off of his feet. He gets down onto his hands and his knees, and he touches his chest to the ground and got under the stream of water that he could turn and he could drink. He got below it so that he could drink. And then he said, do that. And I did the same. And it was the best water I ever had. Best water I ever had. Over and again, throughout the Bible, in Proverbs and other wisdom books, the starting place for becoming wise is assuming a different posture than the one that's natural to all of us. Meaning, you, if you want wisdom, the Bible's going to say you can't get it standing up. You have to kneel down. You have to lower yourself. So the call is, do you want wisdom? Do you want understanding? Do you want insight? Do you want prudence? Do you want to live in a wise way? Good. It's the best water you'll ever drink, but you can't get it on your feet. Let me show you. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Get on the ground. Lower yourself. It means at some level, friends, if, we have any, if this means anything to any of us over the next year, however long, it begins with collectively us saying, I'm not wise. I don't know. I don't have all that I need. I'm not self-sufficient. If I stay on my feet, I make a mess of things, and, and, and I need to get on the ground. And I think that, like, have you ever known two people who know the exact same information, maybe live very similar lives, maybe have the same education, maybe would, would on paper agree to all of the same things about God and life and all that, and yet they're living two different lives? Like one is thriving and the other is falling apart. You know what the difference is? Posture. Posture is the difference. One thought knowing the stream was there was enough and stayed standing. And the other got on the ground and actually drank. Wisdom is not about what you know. We all know people who are good with information, but they're bad at life. 
I've known people who have PhDs in theology, and they have as many shattered relationships in their life as they have books on their shelf. And all their knowledge and all they've accumulated has not translated into flourishing, into wisdom, because they never got off their feet, stayed wise in their own eyes. The fool, friend, the fool is not uninformed. The fool is simply unchanged by what they know. And you will never, and I will never become wise until we assume wisdom's posture. And the phrase that captures that posture, that thing that brings us from our feet to our hands and knees, is called the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 calls it the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting place. The word wonder in our title, wisdom and wonder, that word wonder is one of the words that will help us understand what that posture means and what it doesn't mean. So next week, one of my favorite preachers, Tamarcus, is going to unpack more of wisdom's posture, and then in two weeks, we're going to spend our entire time talking about the fear of the Lord, what it is, what it's not. But if I could just get an image out there, if I could just start the conversation, the posture of wisdom is someone who has accepted wisdom's invitation to get on the ground, to lower ourselves. I can't stay on my feet. I don't want to be wise in my own eyes. Okay, wisdom's pace. How do we become wise? Wisdom's posture, wisdom's pace. Okay, does anyone want to guess? Two options. Is it fast or is it slow? It's slow, and we all know it. We all know it, and we all hate it because that's a challenge, right? And we don't have patience for slow. We're used to immediate. Um, we were downloading something on our TV the other day, and the screen pops up, and it says 30% downloaded, 20 minutes remaining, and my son goes, 20 minutes, and like lifted his fist to the heavens in disgust, right? Like, <laughs> it's so long. We're not used to waiting. Wisdom's pace is gradual and it's slow and it's incremental growth over long periods of time. Like when you think of a wise person, and I mean no offense, but you probably don't think of someone who's 25. Um, Wisdom takes time. It's why there's a phrase that exists, you're wise beyond your years, right? Because for some people, some lucky people, right, there's a way that, that, that they got wisdom ahead of their time, right? But typically, it requires years. For me, If wisdom is something that downloads in our life, for me, my wisdom screen, if I'm being incredibly charitable to myself, it probably says something like 10% wise, 30 years remaining, right? And I think one of the greatest obstacles to becoming wise is our willingness to wait for it, to be content with, with small steps and small wisdom wins. Let me dig into that a bit. Here's why wisdom is slow. Two reasons. One, wisdom is slow because wisdom requires character. And character takes a long time to develop. If wisdom is one side of a coin, the other side of the coin is godliness. No one, well, uh, wisdom will never outpace our godliness. Derek Kidner, again, he says this, wisdom is godliness in working clothes. It's as if godliness went to work. And and wisdom is, is your character, your godliness at work in reality in the world. There are plenty of instances, friends, where there's not one right answer, and wisdom is not going to tell us, hey, go left instead of going right. Here's what you should do. Wisdom starts somewhere completely different, and it's going to tell us who we should be, who, what, what character we should strive to have. And what's the pace of becoming godly? Slow. It doesn't happen overnight. We change over time. So just to put some teeth to this, we'll probably do a week on wisdom and anger and how the wise handle anger. There's a righteous and an unrighteous way, right? But that requires an amount of character because anger can be explosive. 
And the antidote to unrighteous anger is self-control and humility, and those things take time. We'll do a week on wisdom and parenting, maybe multiple. And spoiler alert, it's not about whether to homeschool or public school. It's not about when, it's not first about when to give an iPhone or if to give an iPhone. What it's first about is it's about, as a parent, being a blend of godly authority and generous grace in the life of your children. What does it take to be that kind of dad or that kind of mom? It takes submitting to God's authority and receiving his generous grace for yourself in in a way that affects who you are. Wise parents are godly people. And even if you and I make all the right decisions for our kids, but it's not from godly character, all we have done is given our children right answers, but we've not modeled what it looks like to leave our feet and lower ourselves in the fear of the Lord under his wisdom. And what they need most from mom and dad is how do I live a life postured for wisdom? How do I live in God's world, in God's way? And so wisdom requires character, and character takes time to develop. The second reason wisdom's slow is it because wisdom honors complexity. Um, if we think about the book of Proverbs, it's filled with proverbial statements, riddles and, and stuff that, that's intended to slow us down and make us think, like, huh. But Proverbs are also not standalone promises or commands. What you will find in Proverbs is you'll actually find Proverbs that appear to contradict each other. And it's not that they're contradicting each other. It's that wisdom honors the complexity of life. Life is complex. Most issues in life have layers to them. And our understanding of those issues doesn't come quickly. And in a right understanding, a wise understanding, only comes if we give ourselves the, the patience. Like, let me just use money as an example. I want to show you three Proverbs about uh, poverty and wealth. Proverbs 10.4. I'll do it quick. Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. If you refuse to work, you will likely be poor. If you work hard, you will make money. But that's not it. Proverbs 11.16. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. Okay, so some people are rich because they work hard, but some people are rich because they're violent. Okay, Proverbs 13, 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So some people work really hard and they're still poor because of injustice, because of things outside of their control that keep them impoverished. Okay, so what's true about the rich? Are the rich diligent or are they violent? Well, both can be true. Some can be righteously wealthy, while others can be unrighteously wealthy. Okay, what's true about the poor? Are they lazy, or do they work hard and injustice robs the reward of their work? Well, both can happen. Some can be unrighteously poor, while some can be righteously poor, and then some can be a mix in a lot of ways of all of them. It's complex. And so wisdom, and and, and the desire to understand an issue with wisdom, it slows things down. And wisdom is going to give us the tools to understand that so many things in life, money, relationships, controversy, whatever it is, there are multiple layers in the wise honor that kind of complexity. And my friends, we live in a climate that does not honor complexity. I don't know if truth's dead, but I know nuance is dead for sure. And, and we want to make things really simple so we can be really confident that we're really right. You know what the fool sounds like? The fool sounds like this. That person's poor, they must be lazy. That person's rich, they must work hard. And maybe it's true, but what if it's not? And what does it require to understand? It requires time. 
slowing down to understand things that are complex. That's the posture for the fool that is applied across a multitude of things, right, to try to make simple what's not simple. And all of that can be summed up in a verse that I have come to love. Proverbs 18, 17, he who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. It's similar to what James says when he says everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. So wisdom honors that complexity. The wise ask questions. They extend charity. They listen, and then they listen some more, and then they listen some more. And what does all that take? Time. It takes time. It slows things down. That's wisdom's pace. Wisdom's pace is slow. Now, to encourage you, if I think about my own pace, it can be daunting, right? Like maybe my wisdom screen says 10% wise 30 years remaining, and that can be discouraging. I want to encourage you. You know what is harder than 30 years of waiting for wisdom? 30 years of being foolish, much harder. Uh, Obedience is hard. Sin is much more difficult than obedience. Okay, wisdom personified, and then I'll pray. I need you to know this. If we ended 30 seconds ago, I would have done you a great disservice. I would have done our church a great disservice and I would have not represented God's heart. Wisdom personified. Like, if we would have stopped, all I would have done is is offer to talk about wisdom, and you and I would have left at best with resolve to try to be wise. You know what we need so much more than resolve as it comes to wisdom? We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus is wisdom personified. It's beautiful. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. John 1, which you heard quoted in the intro video at the very end, it says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word for word there is the idea of wisdom. And in John 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us. The wisdom of Proverbs 8 becomes the human of John 1. It's Jesus. It's like the thread behind creation became a person. And Colossians 1 says, he holds all things together. We become wise in relationship with Jesus by spending time with Jesus. Like, remember when I asked you if you got a chance to spend an hour with the wisest person in the world? That's real. The wisest person in the world is Jesus, and I understand you can't sit with him now over coffee and ask him, what do I do about whatever? But he is present, and there is no path to wisdom that doesn't start with and continue in relationship with Jesus, right? We become wise by following his example, but first, but first, and even more so than that, What we need from him is grace for our foolishness. Grace for the ways that we've been wise in our own eyes. Grace for the ways that we've stood proud on our feet and made a mess of things. And Jesus offers that over and over and over again because of his perfect life, his death in our place, his victory in the resurrection. He says, all of the fools can come to me. And they can first receive mercy and grace for foolishness. And then they can hold my hand and walk with me as we become wise, as he makes us wise. What I hope to do every week is invite us to talk to the wisest person we all know, and that's Jesus, wisdom himself. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, you are wisdom personified. You you never acted foolishly, Jesus. You always did what was right. Not just what was right, you always did what was best. Perfectly precise. Completely wise in the way that you handled people. Questions. Relationships. And so we need your wisdom more than we need your wisdom. The starting place is we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your help. 
So I pray, God, that you would lead us and that you would guide us. I'm so hopeful for this series where we get to just as a collection of people who are not as wise as they want to be, listening uh, to someone who is more foolish than he is wise. I'm just hopeful that you meet us with your mercy. Just hoping that you can, um, God, instruct us in, in maybe what we think is we, we will discover that the thing I thought I needed is not what I actually need and what I've needed all along is God's wisdom. We, this is a confusing time to be alive, God. And what we want is we want your voice to bring clarity to the confusion. And we're so desperate to hear from you. And I pray, God, that you would do whatever it takes to get us off of our feet. That we might humbly submit our lives to you in the fear of the Lord. Not afraid of you, but filled with a wonder and a trembling before you, O oh God. And a reverent worship of you. We need you. Sure, we pray. Amen.